You're about to hear my conversation with Benoit Gervais. We talk all about the commodity situation in Europe, uh, as well as what it means for inflation. And we also have an opportunity to talk about his newly launched Inflation Focus Fund. I hope you enjoy. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Information relating to investment approaches or individual investments should not be construed as advice or endorsement. Listeners should seek professional advice for their situation. Welcome to the McKenzie Investments Podcast. My name is Matthew Schnur, and I'm delighted to be back with Benoit Gervais. Benoit leads the McKenzie Resource Team. Benoit, welcome back. Thanks. Thanks for having us, Matt. Uh, I've invited you back to get your comments on the European energy crisis. Uh, certainly, if you read popular press uh, over the past uh, several weeks, there's been a lot of articles, a lot of scary headlines uh, about uh, the coming winter in Europe and the general European energy crisis. I'd love to get your take on it. Uh, so where do we stand right now, Emma? It's going to be a difficult winter for people in Europe. It'll be at a minimum an expensive winter. And I think we are trying to gauge uh, at the economic level how much uh, this will cost in terms of industrial downtime. I think everybody's trying to optimize for the maximum amount of gas savings so Europe can go through the winter without outages. But I think it probably uh, gives you a good idea of how difficult this energy transition journey will be. And I think this uh, transition journey uh, ran into difficulties in California, and we had some difficulties in California this summer and last summer. And uh, this time around, I guess the Europeans had, which are probably the most advanced nation when it comes to the transition, had been orchestrating a move towards renewable, uh, deselect uh, some of the nuclear power and the coal power, which is, was largely right. completed. Uh, but was also about to turn off, I think, some of the fossil fuel, fuel uh, usage. And, and as we know, and we've talked about this in the past on this podcast, Matt, is is that you will need to complement intermittent power like renewables, something that you can flick on and off. And natural gas is is really, in this transition, going to be instrumental. Um, and if you want to be a purist about climate change, ideally you'd have zero use of fossil fuel. However, it's not possible, not today, not at a reasonable price uh, uh, anyways, right? Without, without batteries. So I think that uh, Europe here uh, in the middle of this crisis is having to reconsider some of its intermediate goals. Right. Uh, and, and there's been lots of, uh, um, conversation about that under the context of energy security uh, and, and trying to shore up sort of energy security in general. Uh, I want to sort of come back, though, to the comment that you're making about uh, transition uh, to the sort of renewable uh, energy grid. Um, are you stating that you think that, um, I, I mean, clearly Russia, Ukraine has been a challenge for Europe and energy. Are you saying that for the longer term or mid to longer term, natural gas is going to be have to be part of that transition uh, and continue to, to supply the grid? Absolutely. So if you have a vision that uh, this 2050 goal has to be achieved or should be achieved, 
uh, at least we should attempt to achieve this uh, net zero goal, then the halfway point is 2035. And un uh, under that type of milestone, it is not possible to think that batteries will be the complement to this intermittent renewable power. So how do you do it? What's the least offensive way to complement this type of power is to use natural gas. Now, Europe being so close to Russia, where gas is uh, very abundant, it was a natural place to do business. Sure. Uh, but we've talked often about ESG, uh, then I guess dealing with the Russian is exactly falling under the S part of this. Um, the cheapest price is only one factor in a decision making of a buyer now, right? So we're not going to accept necessarily the cheapest bidder or offer, uh, supplier in this whole equation. Uh, so where is the next best partner? Well, this is liquefied natural gas, which is very expensive. It takes a lot of time to build. And we haven't, uh, look in Canada has been a very long journey to build ours. It just gives you an example. If you want to do it well with the broad acceptance of pretty much all the stakeholders, you're on a five, six, seven, ten 10 years journey on those terminals. So you turn off Russia and you're turning on LNG on the margin is not cheap at all because you're displacing other nations that are wanting this LNG. And that's right. where we are right here, right today. And um, so to go back to Europe specifically, we you referenced a tough winter uh, to be sure. It sounds like though these challenges, um, barring some sort of political resolution on uh, Russia and Ukraine, and even then if that allows for the sell of, of more uh, Russian gas. It sounds like these problems are going to be present over the, the medium to uh, long-ish term. Is that At the minimum, right? Europe will probably want to diversify its sourcing of natural gas. And that and it means probably dealing with Northern Africa, which has been a difficult place to do business. Right. Uh, dealing more so with the U.S. Uh, and Canada. And it's it's probably having to revisit its phasing out of usage of fossil fuel. I think as a big reality uh, check. So the industries, when you think of the big companies that invest lots of capital in this business, especially in Europe, so think of Shell and Total, for instance, they were told for the past five years that their business was going to be a big zero in a reasonable right. time frame. Uh, they were also told that they would make their life very difficult when it comes to permitting and taxes and so on. So there wasn't much of an incentive to build capacity to supply uh, Europe, at the very least, if not global needs. Uh, now there's a bit of a turnaround. It's still uncertain. There's, we are getting mixed messages, right? Europe is saying maybe we should tax this, win the, tax this windfall tax, uh, this windfall profit. Right. Well... So you're making my life difficult when times are bad and when times are good, you're taxing me. So we're still not too keen to reinvest in this business. And we've seen most of the companies around the world tepidly adding to their capital program, despite the fact that prices are so high. Uh, at the moment, in fact, capital markets are telling those companies with their very, very, very low multiple, we're thinking low single digit PEs for a lot of those companies is to say, we don't believe it. Those profits won't last. 
either the oil or the gas price will come down or the tax man will come and collect the difference. Uh, regardless, give us the money back, whether it's buyback or dividends. Uh, we don't believe it will last. So that's not a solution. That's not a solution at all. Um, so I'm curious um, if if companies are have no incentive to reinvest in increasing production, um, yet nations and individual consumers in general uh, are uh, are looking to maintain their lifestyle, maintain uh, the, the the way that we're, we do business. How does that equilibrium um, get met? So I think that's where we're at, right? The society is is fine. What is that nice balance between achieving climate goals or emission goals over a 10 or 15 year time frame while being able to have access to the same lifestyle at a reasonable price? Right. And I, I think at the middle of this, I think the oil and gas companies have to deliver under emission cuts and everybody else does too. We're talking about singles and doubles. So to reach our emission targets by 2035, uh, it's about 5% emission cuts. So if everybody cuts 5%, whatever industry that is, and it's, mm. it's fair that the resource industries are some of the most offensive one, uh, but power equally, sure. Uh, then it all comes down to who cuts what. And I think that if we can do that on one part at a reasonable price, and then there's a re-rating, a recognition that those companies are part of the solution to provide energy and also deal with climate change, then eventually the multiple will come back and I'll be the ultimate signal to those companies that, you know what, we do want you as part of the solution and be a contributing partner uh, rather than being excluded from the conversation from being uh, large emitters. Right. Um, so first of all, I guess it, it sounds like uh, an interesting investment thesis for those particular companies that are trading at, at such low multiples. I want to switch the conversation though and talk a little bit about inflation um, and how does this uh, how does this sort of energy transition and the challenges that you're seeing to that feed into inflation? And don't confine yourself to Europe. I mean, feel free to talk about inflation uh, more broadly since it's a it feels like a truly global phenomenon, maybe with the exception of China. Obviously, inflation is affecting everybody. Uh, and, and in terms of wages, we're only starting the beginning uh, with teachers, professors, rail workers. Um, pretty much everybody is asking uh, a wage increase that resembles inflation. And we know what that number has been, you know, it's in the high single digits, if not 10%. And sure. the starting point is just that and part of the negotiation. And that filters through everything, right? Um, in, in terms of the commodities in general, yes, a uh, big part is wages uh, that has gone through, but also all of those other elements, which we just discussed, which is uh, permitting. Uh, doing this responsibly. All of this is not coming at a smaller price. Um, if you want lower emissions, for instance, in the power sector, this transition towards uh, renewable was sold by politicians to all of us as something that would happen cheaper. Not only would it be cleaner and better for the environment, it would be cheaper. Right. And, and that's a big fallacy. Uh, so we ran a study, for instance, over the past uh, 20 years in America, power usage has been between zero and 1% growth. Yet 
the asset base of the utilities has grown seven and some percent. Oh, Yet okay. the average bill to the consumer has not budged. Hmm. So it did feel like, well, we're getting more uh, reliable power. We are getting renewables, lower emissions. We cut off the coal power and it's the same price. That's a good deal, right? Uh, but in fact, what it was hiding is that the interest rates for that whole period were coming down. Right. So if you say, well, interest rates have nowhere but to go sideways, if not up, then at a minimum, this power cost going forward, you will still want to do more of that, right? And that's sure. going to be 7%. That's your starting point. It is not 0% or 1%. Um, wages are the same. We've talked about this inequities across uh, classes. Right. And now some of the offshoring, right? The loss of industrial jobs, blue collar jobs, <clears throat> and the loss of the middle class. Uh, if we want to bring this back, then that means business here in things that were just uh, done in places like China. Um, it doesn't mean we're reshoring everything, but it means that on the margin, if we're going to put some criteria as to who we're doing business, who has a decent environmental practice, who has a, de a decent supply and logistics, uh, then all of a sudden we have fewer partners to deal with. We bring it home because we can tell who's doing it right. It doesn't come at a cheaper price. Right. So, so that you're making the case for sort of structural inflation almost uh, given these different these different factors. Is that fair? So climate change is more expensive. Onshoring is more expensive. Infrastructure, which has finally gone through in the U.S., um, has been underrepresented as part of the budget since 2008, the crisis, the great financial crisis. Mm. And the great productivity gains we have experienced over the past 15 years was on the back, if you want, a very little investment in infrastructure. There's only so much you can do of that before you have mm -hmm. to say, well, you know what? We have grown population, but we haven't added a school. Right. You're going to have to add some school at some point, right? And I think we're feeling through this COVID crisis that it felt like it wasn't done well. We haven't done enough investments in transit. We haven't done inve enough investments in schools and hospitals. So it's all a balance, right? Unfortunately, it'll cost more, more material, sure. people intensive. So I think that this 2%, which seemed to be a magic number for several, couple decades at least. And before that, it was much higher. And that's really the question everybody has to ask is to say, well, is this 2.5%, uh, which seemed to be in the market over the long term, call it five years out, four years out. Right. Do you want to take the over on this or the under? And if wages are 10% now, or the, at least the ask is 10%, is it going to be two and a half next year and the year after? I don't think so. It's still, if you want to achieve those ESG goal, climate change, onshoring, infrastructure on top of that. I think that's, that is the problem. I see. Um, so, I, I mean, I guess the counter argument to that is uh, central bank action. 
Uh, clearly, central banks are acting with uh, very much resolve. Um, Jay Powell uh, referenced that pain will be coming uh, during this Jackson uh, Hole speech. Uh, do you think central bankers will continue to act and effectively bludgeon the economy to get that inflation down to two, or or you think it's it's quite uh, possible or probable that they accept a, a higher level uh, over the longer term? They're certainly doing the right thing. Um, if you think that we could do all of this, absorb the inflation, and run the economy flat out. I think probably we'd, we'd be in for an accident. And that would truncate the whole cycle. Uh, we think they're doing their best to slow down the economy, allow this inflation to flow through. I think there's no going back. It has to flow through for all those reasons. Now, right. what is the right pace of economic growth in response to this? We're trying to find where is this uh, balance. Um, right now, we're talking about 2%. Uh, but let's face it, no, we have not, not been on this journey before, or at least sure. for a very long time. We have to go back to the 70s and 80s when inflation was high. In the 80s, it was on its way down. In the 70s, on its way up. What's so magic about 2%? You may ask. I mean, we were in those 4% inflation environment, and we could manage. Right. So I think that's where there could be um, a reckoning day for some of uh, asset classes that are in the market that they have to readjust to take into account those secular themes and where the growth is going to come from and what are the costs that come with this. Uh, makes makes sense. Um, I, I'm curious, and, and I know that uh, recently at McKinsey, we've just launched a new uh, product that you're managing uh, that is all about inflation protection. Um, you know, I think traditionally when I think about inflation protection, people uh, gravitate to asset class like commodities, um, and and that's seemingly a, a nice way to play it. Although uh, these things are, are challenging to to structure. So, what are you doing over uh, on that particular fund, and how, how have you structured it in order to provide clients with a way to invest uh, despite inflation? So, this inflation focused fund is a balanced fund, and most many people, many Canadians, already have a bound fund in their portfolio, most likely. Uh, so you may ask, why would we need yet another uh, balanced fund in the quiver? And the answer is that if you think of the last 20, 30, 40 years and the assets that have performed well are a lot of those long duration assets, whether right. it's infrastructure, the long bonds, I mean, we've been told all along by the by those long bonds, they pay you extra, right? Mm -hmm. um, growth assets, whether it's Google and Apple's and the like, which have tremendous uh, earnings growth out in the future. Well, if you start discounting or applying a higher inflation, therefore a higher discount rate to all of those assets, then the pressure is immense on some of those multiples. And unfortunately, most of the traditional funds are set up with those assets, right? They've used historical performance and built around this low volatility, high success rate, buy the lows, grow tends to outperform. Um, most people have forgotten what it could uh, do to you when you have high inflation. Uh, value tends to outperform because it has low P, therefore short duration. You want a position with a very low duration in your fixed income. So 
for instance, the aggregate index of bonds is at seven years, we're operating in that twos, two and a half year type of duration. So it's a very uh, different and commodities just uh, on top of this. But so if you look at the mix of assets is very different than what you would find in a traditional um, a traditional balance fund. So if you think that inflation is going back to 2% and we'll be in this uh, nice, happy world like we were for the past 10, 20 years, you certainly don't need yet another balance fund in your portfolio. However, if you think that inflation is likely to be on the rise for some time here, and the bar is pretty low at 2.5% over the long term, then you will probably spend much more time in those regimes right. when inflation is hurting those long duration asset classes. So I think that people will probably be interested in moving ahead of the curve and positioning themselves into an inflation focused uh, fund to make their asset allocation. Well, Benoit, congratulations on the launch of your new fund. Uh, I look forward to the success and to, to monitoring that. I also appreciate you spending the time to walk us through the situation in Europe uh, and the commodity complex as a whole and your views on inflation. Thanks very much, Benoit. Thanks to you, Matt, for inviting us. The content of this podcast, including facts, views, opinions, and recommendations, is not to be used or construed as investment advice and is not an offer or an invitation to buy or sell any security. The content of this podcast should not be relied upon for any purposes and McKenzie Financial Corporation is not responsible for any reliance upon it. This podcast includes forward-looking information that reflects our current expectations or forecasts of future events. Forward-looking information is subject to risks, uncertainties, and assumptions that could cause actual results to differ materially from those expressed herein. Our views are subject to change based on market conditions. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees, and expenses may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the fund facts and prospectus before investing. The indicated rates of returns are historical annual compounded total returns, including changes to unit values and reinvestment of all dividends or distributions and does not take into account sales, redemptions, distribution, or optional charges or income taxes payable by any security holder that would have reduced returns.